0: This is Medieval Death Trip for Tuesday, December 24th, 2019. Episode 79, Concerning Cursed Christmas Carolers and an Unlikely Bishop. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. This episode is a little holiday treat and a way to actually manage to have two episodes this month, uh, albeit in a rather compressed schedule. Uh, Today, we're sticking with William of Malmesbury's Gesta Regum Anglorum, which we dipped into last episode with The Portrait of William Rufus. The selection I'll read today includes a little tale set on Christmas Eve, and then moves on to another narrative that isn't directly connected to Christmas, but has a bit of a a don't-judge-a-book-by-its-cover, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer kind of lesson to it. Though, at the end, uh, it goes into less heartwarming territory. Uh, it maybe even gets a little krampus in spirit, uh, with some sinners being punished. In fact, there is, potentially, maybe, an actual connection to Krampus uh, with this text, but that will have to wait until after we read it. And let's just get right to it. For context, this episode comes as a digression within William's account of the turbulent reign of King Athelrad II, a.k.a. Athelrad Unrad, or Athelrad the Unready. Here's the narrative as translated once again by Sharp and Giles. And since I have wandered from my subject, I think it may not be unpleasant to relate what took place in Saxony in the time of this king, in the year of our Lord, 1012, and is not so generally known. It is better to dilate on such matters than to dwell on Athelred's indolence and calamities, and it will be more pleasing, certainly, and nearer the truth, if I subjoin it in the original language of the person who was a sufferer than if I clothed it in my own words. Besides, I think it ornamental to a work that the style should be occasionally varied. Here is inserted the text of a letter. I, Ethelbert, a sinner, even were I desirous of concealing the divine judgment which overtook me, yet the tremor of my limbs would betray me. Wherefore, I shall relate circumstantially how this happened that all may know the heavy punishment due to disobedience. We were, on the eve of our Lord's nativity, in a certain town of Saxony, in which was the church of Magnus the Martyr, and a priest named Robert had begun the first Mass. I was in the churchyard with eighteen companions, fifteen men and three women, dancing, and singing profane songs to such a degree that I interrupted the priest, and our voices resounded amid the sacred solemnity of the Mass. Wherefore, having commanded us to be silent and not being attended to, he cursed us in the following words, May it please God and Saint Magnus that you remain singing in that manner for a whole year. His words had their effect. The son of John the priest seized his sister, who was singing with us by the arm, and immediately tore it from her body, but not a drop of blood flowed out. She also remained a whole year with us, dancing and singing. The rain fell not upon us, nor did cold, nor heat, nor hunger, nor thirst, nor fatigue assail us. We neither wore our clothes nor shoes, but we kept on singing as though we had been insane. First we sank into the ground up to our knees, Next to our thighs, a covering was at length, by the permission of God, built over us to keep off the rain. When a year had elapsed, Herbert, bishop of the city of Cologne, released us from the tie wherewith our hands were bound, and reconciled us before the altar of St. Magnus. The daughter of the priest, with the two other women, died immediately. The rest of us slept three whole days and nights. Some died afterwards, and are famed for miracles." The remainder betray their punishment by the trembling of their limbs this narrative was given to us by the lord peregrine the successor of herbert in the year of our lord 1013 In that city, which formerly was called Agrippina, from Agrippa, the son-in-law of Augustus, but afterwards named Colonia by the emperor Trajan, because being there created emperor, he found in it a colony of Roman citizens, in this city, I repeat, there was a certain bishop, famed for piety, though to a degree hideous in his person, of whom I shall relate one miracle, which he predicted when dying, after having first recorded what a singular chance elevated him to such an imminent station." The emperor of that country, going to hunt on Quinquagesima Sunday, came alone, for his companions were dispersed, to the edge of a wood, where this rural priest, deformed and almost a monster, had a church. The emperor, feigning himself a soldier, humbly begs a mass, which the priest immediately begins. The other, in the meantime, was revolving in his mind why God, from whom all beautiful things proceed, should suffer so deformed a man to administer his sacraments. Presently, when that verse in the tract occurred, Know ye that the Lord himself is God, the priest looked behind him to chide the inattention of an assistant, and said with a louder voice, as if in reply to the emperor's thoughts, He made us, and not we ourselves. Struck with this expression, the emperor, esteeming him a prophet, exalted him, though unwilling and reluctant, to the archbishopric of Cologne, which, when he had once assumed, he dignified by his exemplary conduct, kindly encouraging those who did well and branding with the stigma of excommunication such as did otherwise without respect of persons. The inhabitants of that place proclaim a multitude of his impartial acts, one of which the reader will peruse in that abbreviated form which my work requires. In a monastery of nuns in that city, There was a certain virgin, who had there grown up more by the kindness of her parents than through any innate wish for a holy life. This girl, by the attraction of her beauty and her affable language to all, allured many lovers, but while others, through fear of God or the censure of the world, restrained their desires, there was one, who, excited to wantonness by the extent of his wealth and the nobility of his descent, broke through the bounds of law and of justice and despoiled her of her virginity, and carrying her off, kept her as his lawful wife. Much time elapsed while the abbess entreated, and his friends admonished him not to persevere in so dreadful a crime. Turning a deaf ear, however, to his advisors, he continued as immovable as a rock. By chance at this time, the prelate was absent, occupied in business at Rome, but on his return, the circumstance was related to him. He commands the sheep to be returned to the fold directly, and after much altercation, the woman was restored to the monastery. Not long after, watching an opportunity when the bishop was absent, she was again carried away. Excommunication was then denounced against the delinquent so that no person could speak to or associate with him. This, however, he held in contempt and retired to one of his estates afar off, not to put the command in force, but to elude its power, and there, a turbulent and powerful man, he lived in company with his excommunicated paramour. But when it pleased God to take the bishop to himself, and he was lying in extreme bodily pain upon his bed, the neighbors flocked around him that they might partake the final benediction of this holy man. The offender alone, not daring to appear, prevailed on some persons to speak for him, The moment the bishop heard his name, he groaned, and then, I add his very words, spoke to the following effect. If that wretched man shall desert that accursed woman, he shall be absolved. But if he persist, let him be ready to give account before God the following year, at the very day and hour on which I shall depart. Moreover, you will see me expire when the bell shall proclaim the sixth hour. Nor were his words vain. For he departed at the time which he had predicted, and the other, together with his mistress, at the expiration of the year, on the same day, and at the same hour, was killed by a stroke of lightning. So let's start with that last story first. William of Malmesbury is not very forthcoming with any details here, such as names or years for the elevation of this distinctive looking priest to the Archbishopric of Cologne. Running through Wikipedia's articles on the archbishops of the city from the 9th century through the 11th, I can't find anyone whose biography aligns with any of the details in this story, uh, and certainly not. Herbert, or Heribert, the archbishop named in the Christmas Dancer's story. There are six out of the 21 bishops in this period who don't have Wikipedia articles, so maybe one of those is William's humble priest. If any of you out there have an answer to this mystery, uh, do let me know. Of course, there's not necessarily a whole lot of reason to seek an answer. The plot of this tale points towards a folkloric fable hitting that moral of don't judge a book by its cover, though with a bit of a twist in that the humble, pious, outcast priest ends up not so much as a figure of kindness and compassion, but as a kind of scourge of sinners, a great excommunicator, whose final act is to call lightning down upon a sacrilegious couple. Well, okay, he doesn't call it down. He foresees this divine punishment, but we're still firmly in the tradition of the saintly curse here. Interestingly, there is a doctrinal issue with the deformed priest, which is that in the Middle Ages, there were standards that had to be met before ordination, uh, or at least be officially waived through a papal dispensation, which included that the candidate for the priesthood be perfect in body. As described in a recent article in Speculum by Sarah McDougall, quote, "...there could be no scandalously noticeable missing or blemished parts scarring or permanent rashes on the face or limbs, or deformities such as a hunched back. MacDougall's description is rooted specifically in the canon law of the 12th and 13th centuries, a little after our story, but this general requirement for priestly purity, as reflected in a bodily wholeness and wholesomeness, goes back to Deuteronomy. Indeed, it's a common theme you find in diverse religious traditions, The person who is sent to be in contact with the divine is often required to be pure, untainted, healthy, etc. So, the emperor's prejudice in wondering that this apparently severely deformed person is administering sacraments is not just a personal fault, being judgmental, but is a reflection of actual doctrine Now, obviously, there are plenty of saintly and historical counterexamples of priests with disfigurements, so exceptions were made. Uh, Also, it's worth noting that this was principally a requirement for ordination. Diseases, wounds, and potentially disfiguring injuries received once one was already a priest fall into a different category. These could still be a concern for whether or not a priest was allowed to continue administering sacraments but such cases seem to be adjudicated more on the pragmatic basis of whether or not the person can physically do the job with blindness or the loss of limbs being the kinds of problems that would be an issue. The symbolic issue of bodily wholeness seems less significant uh, for those who are already priests. Oh, and while we're on the topic, castration is specifically included as a violation of bodily perfection. For admission to the priesthood, priests were required to have two healthy testicles, and this was established long before the Pope Joan story that I'm sure many of you have heard. However, if someone who is already a priest is castrated, then that is not disqualifying. Also, while this was stated as a requirement for ordination, there's little evidence of any candidates actually being physically examined to prove that they met this standard. Uh, Again, echoes of the Pope Joan legend but we do have some surviving documentation of men who proactively disclosed that they were missing one or both testicles for various reasons and sought their dispensations from the Pope. Anyway, given all this, it is interesting that William of Malmesbury makes no remark on the precise nature of the priest's deformity other than to emphasize its severity. Was it congenital or the result of an injury? How did this obscure rural priest get ordained in the first place? And were there really no obstacles to his elevation to the archbishopric? Well, I suppose if he has the blessing of the Holy Roman Emperor, that goes a long way to answering the last question anyway. The other curious thing about this story is that William opts to include it in his history at all. There's no strict topical necessity for covering it. Uh, William seems to have voluntarily included it even though it might feel a touch barbed to one of William's patrons, Queen Matilda, wife of Henry I. Matilda, born Edith, was also sent in her youth into a convent, uh, like the young lady of the story, and the issue of whether or not she had taken vows and properly become a nun became a point of debate and controversy when she was set to marry Henry I. Also, hearkening back to last episode, some texts suggest that the main reason she was put into a monastery was to protect her from the lustful attentions of Henry's older brother, William Rufus. Dropping this tale of a would-be nun and her lover being annihilated by a lightning bolt uh, into a book, which we have some evidence to suggest was written at the request of Matilda, seems like a bold choice, uh, to say the least. Well... Let's move on back to the opening narrative, the tale of the cursed revelers. Other sources, probably better sources, uh, place this incident at the convent church of Kolvig in 1027. In German, the priest responsible for the curse is named Ruprecht. Uh, One scholar from the early 19th century, Justus Hecker, claims that this Ruprecht gives his name to the folkloric figure of Knecht Ruprecht one of the somewhat sinister companions of St. Nicholas in the German traditions, a character parallel with Black Peter or Krampus, though I haven't found any more modern scholars making this connection between the two Ruprechts, and Connect Ruprecht only appears to emerge as a Christmas tradition in the 17th century. So, alas, the link seems tenuous at best. But the story appears in the Nuremberg Chronicle, and it survived in local popular tradition, so it's not inconceivable that the medieval legend had some influence on early modern folklore. As for the particular version of the story we just heard, I was not able to find anyone who had traced the letter of Ethelbert, or some manuscripts give the name as Otbert, uh, that William of Malmesbury quotes in his history. There is a rich tradition of essentially fictional letter writing in the Middle Ages, uh, whether it's the letter of Prester John or apocryphal letters from saints and apostles, so it wouldn't be that surprising for this legend to be put down by someone in the literary form of an open letter, and for that letter to cross paths with William in his researches. The story is also sometimes considered as a rather early example of the historical phenomenon of dancing plagues, which really emerge a couple of hundred years later. Hecker writes about various medieval epidemics, and he offers this description of a dancing plague which came on the heels of the Black Death near Aachen in 1374. Quote, They formed circles, hand in hand, and appearing to have lost all control over their senses, continued dancing, regardless of the bystanders, for hours together, in wild delirium, until at length they fell to the ground in a state of exhaustion. They then complained of extreme oppression, and groaned as if in the agonies of death, until they were swathed in cloths bound tightly round their waists, upon which they again recovered, and remained free from complaint until the next attack. This practice of swathing was resorted to on account of the tympany which followed these spasmodic ravings, but the bystanders frequently relieved patients in a less artificial manner, by thumping and trampling upon the parts affected. While dancing, they neither saw nor heard, being insensible to external impressions through the senses, but were haunted by visions, their fancies conjuring up spirits, whose names they shrieked out, and some of them afterwards asserted that they felt as they had been immersed in a stream of blood, which obliged them to leap so high. Others during the paroxysm, saw the heavens open and the Savior enthroned with the Virgin Mary, according as the religious notions of the age were strangely and variously reflected in their imaginations. Where the disease was completely developed, the attack commenced with epileptic convulsions. Those affected fell to the ground senseless, panting and laboring for breath. They foamed at the mouth, and suddenly, springing up, began their dance amidst strange contortions. Yet the malady doubtless made its appearance very variously, and was modified by temporary or local circumstances whereof non-medical contemporaries but imperfectly noted the essential particulars accustomed as they were to confound their observation of natural events with their notions of the world of spirits. End quote. These outbreaks of dancing continued to erupt in the vicinity for about 10 months before ceasing as mysteriously as they began. But other outbreaks appeared elsewhere in Germany, in Cologne and Metz, as reported in local chronicles. Uh, Hecker offers his own paraphrase of what these sources describe Quote, Peasants left their plows, mechanics their workshops, housewives their domestic duties to join the wild revels, and this rich commercial city became the scene of the most ruinous disorder. Secret desires were excited, and but too often found opportunities for wild enjoyment and numerous beggars, stimulated by vice and misery, availed themselves of this new complaint to gain a temporary livelihood. Girls and boys quitted their parents and servants their masters to amuse themselves at the dances of those possessed and greedily imbibed the poison of mental infection. Above a hundred unmarried women were seen raving about in consecrated and unconsecrated places, and the consequences were soon perceived." Gangs of idle vagabonds who understood how to imitate the life of the gestures and convulsions of those really affected roved from place to place seeking maintenance and adventures and thus, wherever they went, spreading this disgusting spasmodic disease like a plague. For in maladies of this kind, the susceptible are infected as easily by the appearance as by the reality." At last, it was found necessary to drive away these mischievous guests, who were equally inaccessible to the exorcisms of the priests and the remedies of the physicians. It was not, however, until after four months that the Rhenish cities were able to suppress these impostures which had so alarmingly increased the original evil. In the meantime, when once called into existence, the plague crept on and found abundant food in the tone of thought which prevailed in the 14th and 15th centuries— and even, though in a minor degree, throughout the 16th and 17th, causing a permanent disorder of the mind and exhibiting in those cities to whose inhabitants it was a novelty, scenes as strange as they were detestable. End quote. These dancers of the late 1300s were sometimes called St. John's dancers, since the first incident was said to have started on St. John's Day, and the dancers were described as invoking the name of St. John the Baptist. There is possibly a connection as well to the celebration of that feast day, since like Christmas and Easter and All Souls Day and many, many other Christian holidays, old pagan rituals were transferred into the Christian context, and one that we find in northern Europe is a ceremony of leaping over a fire with the idea that passing through the sacred smoke and flames would protect one for a year from various evils. So ecstatic leaping is linked to ecstatic dancing, and that might be partly behind the initial framing of this dancing plague of the 1370s. A generation or so later, in 1418, another dancing plague afflicted Strasbourg. The afflicted were treated at chapels of St. Vitus, and the condition was given the name St. Vitus's Dance, as recorded in the Chronicle of Jan von Konigshoven, and that name has stuck. Uh, both in the popular consciousness and as a sort of deprecated medical term uh, since replaced by the Latin word chorea, uh, the term for uncontrolled spasmodic muscle movements. Uh, But this usage of chorea itself comes from a shortening of the Latin for St. Vitus's dance. Chorea is the Latinized version of the same word in Greek, which means dance, as in choreography. In the medical context, St. Vitus's dance eventually came to refer specifically to Sydenham's chorea, which is a disorder that can develop in people, usually children, who have had rheumatic fever. This narrowing is presumably because the broader category of chorea encompasses symptoms of genetic conditions like Huntington's disease or the side effects of certain drugs, whereas Sydenham's chorea is linked directly to a contagious and epidemic disease, which accords more with the medieval tradition of St. Vitus's dance, though Sydenham's Korea is not really a plausible explanation for the dancing plagues we've discussed so far. But why St. Vitus? Well, St. Vitus, a 4th century martyr, uh, and his relics, had a reputation for being particularly effective in curing demoniacs and people afflicted by epilepsy. And since these 14th and 15th century outbreaks were often perceived as a kind of demonic possession— In contrast to the saintly curse we see in our 11th century tale, uh, St. Vitus seemed a particularly appropriate patron saint for curing the dancers. Also, non-pathological dancing uh, had been connected with the veneration of St. Vitus, though nothing in the rather sketchy early vitae we have for him seems to be a source for this association. There are lots of good, weird history podcasts and shows and books that have covered theories on the dancing plagues. Uh, The podcast Sawbones has a good early episode on it. And rather than rehashing all of that here, I'll direct you to those many others who have covered this subject. Moreover, our tale of cursed Christmas dancers may superficially resemble the later dancing plagues, but is at its heart, I think, a rather different beast. I expect its explanations don't lie with cerebral inflammations or food contamination or even group psychology, but in the viral transmission and mutation of folklore. I'm pretty sure it has a closer kinship to Hans Christian Andersen's The Red Shoes and to tales of fairy mounds than it has to epidemiological studies. The story has received a few literary treatments since the Middle Ages— Uh, William of Malmesbury's account seems to be the basis for a poetic adaptation of the story from 1899 by Edith M. Thomas. Her version of the story is given in 24 English Otavarima stanzas in quaint, late Victorian style. Uh, Here's a sampling of a representative stanza. They're dancing yet who danced on yester eve. They're dancing yet who trilled the careless song. And where they circle, if ye will believe, no snow hath fallen there the whole night long. Still hand in hand the dance they gaily weave, nor do they heed the gathering anxious throng. The prayers of these, the angry threats of those, who vainly strive locked fingers to unclose. The whole poem is available through Google Books if you want to read it on your Christmas Eve. Uh, I don't think it's going to displace a visit from St. Nicholas or How the Grinch Stole Christmas anytime soon, but it is at least easily accessible. There's a link to it on the posting for this episode on our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. At that website, you can get more information, including references for this and every episode, You can also send email there to Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com with questions or comments, or you can even more conveniently find me on Twitter at MDTPodcast. And of course, you can also support the show materially on Patreon. Because of our Patreon supporters' contributions, I have recently been able to purchase a rather expensive set of audio tools that, like Santa's elves have been able to do some truly magical things with automatic cleaning up of the horrible, inadvertent sounds that the human mouth can produce when one talks or breathes. And on these last two episodes, they have saved me so much editing time. Uh, I'm hoping they will make production that much easier and will give us smoother sailing for the new year. So again, thank you, patrons of Medieval Death Trip, If you'd like to become a patron, just search for Medieval Death Trip on patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. So, until next time, have a wonderful holiday, and a happy new year, and thanks for listening.